On Tuesday this week, Iran's World Cup campaign in Qatar ended in circumstances which must have been Iran's pre-tournament nightmare scenario. Beaten by the United States, the country picturesquely damned by the Ayatollahs as the Great Satan. Back home in Iran, however, some of the response to their team's exit from the World Cup was surprising. Footage from several cities appeared to show people celebrating Iran's defeat by the US. Iran's participation in the World Cup was always likely to reflect and or catalyse the protests which have been consuming the country for nearly three months now. On September 16th, a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, died after being apprehended by the Guidance Patrol, the branch of Iran's police who, in theory, enforce the morality codes of Iranian law, but who in practice spend much of their time pestering women about the angle at which they wear their compulsory headscarves. The protests ignited by Masa Amini's death have escalated into the biggest challenge to the Islamic Republic since the revolution of 1979, and the protesters appear undaunted by the characteristically brutal response of security forces, which has left hundreds dead. Why have these protests proved so durable? Will they persuade the regime to bend? Might they cause it to break? And what kind of Iran does its younger generation want? This is The Foreign Desk. A hacktivist group have just hacked into the FARS news agency and they've got this classified news bulletin and it's something they send out to their highest commanders. Now that classified bulletin shows that the regime is flailing. It's scared of the protesters and it doesn't have a strategy. Khamenei, the supreme leader, seems to be micromanaging everything and it really paints a picture of a crumbling system. Instead of scaring people when protesters are getting killed, it's pushing more and more people in the streets. It's making people more angry. And I really think that this generation is a force to be reckoned with. And when you talk to them and the things they say, they tell me that they're willing to sacrifice. And some of these Gen Z protesters that have been killed, they actually will say, this might be my last time going out. And they know this full well. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me today is Ramita Navai, journalist, documentary maker and author of City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death and the Search for Truth in Tehran, and Nagin Shirakai, former presenter at the BBC's Persian service. Ramita, we'll start with these images circulating on social media this week since Iran was knocked out of the World Cup by the United States of all countries, which appear to show people in Iran actually celebrating this result. What do you make of those images, especially given the context of the game and who it was against? I'm not surprised that Iranians have been celebrating the fact that the great Satan beat Iran. Iranians have been pretty conflicted about the football, mainly because the regime has been brilliant at hijacking the football, using the players as a pawn. So making a big song and dance about the fact that the players had to go and pay their respects to regime top brass, claiming the players for themselves. And what happened after the win against Wales was really important. That was a turning point. So when the Iranian team beat Wales, it emerged that the regime had planned celebrations in the streets by its riot police. 
Now that set Iranians on a collision course with the regime and Iranians wanting to claim back the football. And it did that by cheering the US. And Nagin, do you get the sense that this World Cup and Iran's participation in it has one way or another catalyzed the protests still further? I think it kind of reflected more than catalyzing it. It reflected the conflict that existed inside of the country and the efforts that people are putting every day to make sure that their voices have been heard. Because every time they go out on the streets, there are people getting killed, even like... Any small protests can lead to a bloodshed at the end. Even the celebrations, sometimes um, something like that happen in them. So all of these little things were there and people are continuously looking for ways to show the world that how much angry they are. And I think even the people who weren't that 100% sure to politicize football as an audience, after the Wales game, they sided against the national team. Ramita, there was just one more aspect of Iran's participation in the World Cup I wanted to clear up, which was that moment before the game, their first game against England. And right there is a team representing another country with which Iran has a certain amount of history. And there was that extraordinary image of the Iranian team notably declining to sing along with Iran's national anthem. What did you read into that? Well, that was huge and that was meaningful for Iranians around the world and Iranians in Iran, because as I said, up to that point, the regime had done a really good job of hijacking the Iranian team and lauding them as their own. These football players represent the regime. And that moment was their moment to one fingered salute to the regime, to say, no, we're not yours. We're with the people. And of course, there were repercussions. That was a dangerous, dangerous act of protest in itself. You don't think the significance of that moment was in any way missed by the people protesting back home? So Iranians have been conflicted. There have been, you know, groups of Iranians who have been cheering the Iranians on, the football team on, but have been doing this in their privacy of their own homes. They haven't wanted to do this in public because they're scared that the Iranian football team are seen as representing the regime. It's a complex one for Iranians. So normally in London, Negin and I, we go to a pub, don't we? And we watch the team, we cheer on. But Certainly none of my Iranian friends were doing that this year. Were yours, Nagin? No, they weren't. But I think I have to disagree with one point you're raising. That like I think at least myself was on I was on that camp and I know a lot of my friends were watching football. They thought the team not singing the national anthem is not enough. So that notion was a strong after the first game and after the second game, where they went to the field and sang the national anthem that created even bigger anger and then the celebration after that led to a massive celebration after the loss against Germany. Yeah no I would agree Iranians were disappointed with the football team which I think is a shame. Well, let's look at the state of the protests in Iran now. And I'll start with you, Nagin. These protests have, of course, now been going on for some weeks. What's the latest you're hearing from Iran about the extent of them now? Are they still widespread? Are they still ongoing? Have they evolved in any way from when they first started? They are still ongoing and the numbers that are coming out and the events that are happening are showing they're extended across the country in different cities. For example, after the U.S. win, the celebration was extended. It happened after the midnight and all night there were different cities across the country that were 
celebrating. And then that led to tear gas and clashes between the government forces and, and the protesters. And unfortunately, some people died in those protests as well. So it happens, but it's not as intense every day like the first eight weeks of the protest. But it's changing in its shape and its methods, as well as more strikes we are seeing. Right now, the lorry drivers are on a strike in different parts of the country. Some factories were on a strike. But there are calls for more actions. One of the other things that I see underneath of all of these is bubbling, is that collective efforts inside and outside Iran for creating networks and finding new ways of putting pressure on the government. And it shows, you know, after four decades, the Iranian government, the Islamic Republic has been really smart in not allowing this kind of networks shape and exist in the country. But now suddenly the method of the protest is changing towards that and they understanding if they want to create a change within this system and topple it down, they need to target more strategically. And I think that's what we're going to see in the next three months, the more strategic efforts from the people and more organised efforts from the public. On that thought, Ramita, or at least looking at it from the other side, do you get the sense yet that the regime has decided what their strategy is? Are they content to allow an amount of this sort of dissent in the hope that it burns itself out? Or would they be tempted towards the absolutely merciless full-scale crackdown, which is not to belittle the degree to which they have cracked down already? Well, there's an interesting question to ask right now because there's been a really interesting development. So it would seem that the regime doesn't have a strategy. And what backs this up is a hacktivist group called Black Reward have just hacked into the FARS news agency. Now, that's a revolutionary guard owned news agency. And they've got this classified news bulletin and it's something they send out to their highest commanders. And as well as filming a FARS news journalist masturbating at his desk, by the way, and releasing that footage on social media, they also released this classified bulletin. Now, that classified bulletin shows that the regime is flailing. It's scared of the protesters and it doesn't have a strategy. Khamenei, the supreme leader, seems to be micromanaging everything. And it really paints a picture of a crumbling system. And within this bulletin itself, the bulletin states that they think about three quarters of the Iranians are for the protests. This is huge. I mean, that is huge. Well, it's the proverbial huge, if true. And it does prompt the question, again, of whether this is something entirely new in an Iranian context, perhaps amplified by the cyber dimension. Do these protests feel different to you than 2009? Definitely they do. If we had a time machine and we could go to the future and we would look back, we would say, yeah, the sparks of the Women Life Freedom Revolution started back in 2009 by one part of the society start, you know, getting to the streets and creating the massive protests. But then on the shoulder of that, every time people went to the streets and protested or showed their against the government, it was a different part of the society. What happened this time is with death of Massa, all of these different groups gathered together around the same cause that is about women, life and freedom. And these three are actually the core of what's happening right now. And they 
smartly soon after, you know, starting the protest, instead of just asking for the hijab or, you know, the woman's right, extended their demands to a much bigger thing, which is changing the system. And they shouted that the government is not legitimate and it needs to go. And that notion hasn't existed in the country before that. When the 2009 happened, it was a reformist revolution, not a movement, and they were mostly trying to change within the system. Then it changed when more poor people gathered, different types of people started to demand their own rights for environmental rights, from access to clean water, situations like this, to the most fundamental thing that the Islamic Republic took away from them, which is control over their bodies and mind. And that's why now we are seeing a completely different and a massive energy behind this movement. Ramita, this obviously all goes back to that encounter between young Masa Amini and the police in Tehran. If you could just give us some sort of benchmark for how common that kind of pestering is for women just trying to go out and about and live their lives in Tehran or indeed any other Iranian city. It's pretty common, especially because it was summer. And these crackdowns are pretty cyclical. They happen every summer in Iran when it's really hot and women don't want to cover up as much. And so headscarves become more diaphanous and they're pushed further back. You've also got an emboldened morality police. So when Raisi, a conservative, when he won the elections and he became president, All the conservative organs of the state, like the morality police, were emboldened, right? About six months, a year before Masa Amini was killed by the morality police in custody, the morality police had announced that they were going to use facial recognition cameras specifically to target women in bad hijab. Now, on top of this, you've got another element to this, is that you've got this massive Iranian youth who are pushing back the boundaries. Life is very different for them. So in the last kind of year, two years, year and a half in Iran, especially in Tehran, there are parts of the city where young people turn up not wearing their headscarves. I mean, this is pretty extraordinary. Even my friends in Iran who are my age I'm pretty old, (laughs) in their 40s, no longer wear headscarves when they're driving their cars. So the government was very aware of this, that you've got, you know, this massive youth population in Iran pushing out these boundaries. One other element to this, and that's smartphones. So all of a sudden, everybody on social media is putting clips of what the morality police does when it starts hassling people. And there were clips all through the summer. And so that's why tensions started to get really high and started to bubble over. You know, there was one clip of a young, of a mother screaming to the morality police to not take her daughter away. And she's hit in the head by the door of a van as it drives off. And that was just a powder keg. Ramita, there's just a follow-up I wanted to ask about that, which is is not so much the what of the morality police do, but why they do it. From the regime's perspective, what do you think the motivation has always been? Is it a, a genuine ideological fixation with what women are wearing, or do they see it as a lever of political control? And just as I'm asking it, I realise the answer could be why not both, but... Well, I'd love to know what Negin thinks. I think it's less ideological and it's more control. Control women's bodies, control the masses. 
Yeah, I totally agree with Ramit on this. It's it's about control. It's about control over the woman's body, which makes women worry about you know what to wear, how to leave the house, and all of these little things mount to a lot of stress and pressure. So you don't have time that much of time to think about other things when you're worried about your scar, for example, when you're working in a labor uh, factory, as well as it occupies the other half of the population, which are the men, either by controlling their women, forcing them to control their women, or face the consequences of the disobedience. So it, it, it keeps the population busy with something other than the government itself. And, and there's a proof for that. So we have, we've seen a footage of former Ministry of Oil, who's a general in the IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard, going out and his wife apparently doesn't have, you know, her scarf and really a fancy dress in Malaysia. These yeah. kind of clips came out as well as we know all of their children have a different lifestyle. They drink and, you know, party with girls. So it's not ideological. It might have started as one, but even more than that, it was a patriarchal system that was imposing that control over women's body. That's an excellent point. It, this is a pragmatic regime. They are only concerned with holding on to power. At that point, Nagin, and we were foreshadowing this earlier and about what kind of changes the protesters might want, whether there's any coherent line emerging from the protests about how things should be different. I think it's obvious in the slogan, woman, life, freedom, or liberty is, is a better translation for it. But it emphasizes on three things that don't exist. The rights are not complete in Iran. First of all, women have don't, don't have control over their body, over their minds, and you know how they should proceed in society. And then on, the, on top of that, they saw the massive amount of corruption and systematic corruption that exists in the government. That corruption, Ramita wrote a really good book, I have to mention it. It's about you know how the government forces everyone to lie and have two separate lives. Ramita's book is called City of Lies, and it explains how that mentality creates this corrupt system that the result of its management you know, would be the lack of water shortage in, in, in oil-driven parts of Iran, in a lot of, you know, disasters happening in the country. So all of these led to the belief that if we want to change the situation, we have to get rid of this system because we even tried to reform it and it didn't work. Islamic Republic is like, a, I always compare them to an abusive relationship. They, they've been telling people that, you know, if you leave me, if we go, Iran is going to become Afghanistan. That was years ago. And then Iran is going to become Iraq or Syria and kind of make people think that there is no other alternatives. But people now are saying we don't even need, want an alternative. We're going to build it. We don't need you. We don't want you. Uh, just a final thought then, Ramita, sort of summing up what we've discussed. And as you look at what's going on in Iran from afar, I'm sure with an amount of nervousness and trepidation, but ultimately, how optimistic are you able to be about where this might lead? Oh, God. I mean, I want to be optimistic. It's funny, when I talk to Iranians, I'm very aware that I don't want to disappoint them because I am 
more pessimistic than most Iranians I know. I fear, first of all, the longer this drags on, the less likely a revolution will be. You know, revolutions tend to happen very quickly if we look at them historically around the world. The longer they dra- drag on, the messier, uglier, more violent they become. I think sooner or later, the regime will stop flailing and the regime will get itself together and and crack down and really crack down in a way that we haven't yet seen. You know, this is a country that has an army of, what, 300, 350,000 who will turn because they are the people, but they also have an army who are better equipped, better trained of 150,000 revolutionary guards answer to the supreme leader. They're the ones I'm worried about. And Nagin, are you able to be any more upbeat than that? Oh, I'm definitely more upbeat than that. (laughs) (laughs) Because what I can see is how this corrupt system is being making its own children not happy. What they're clinging to at the moment is not a big part of the society. As as Ramita mentioned, it is like maybe 30% and even not all of those 30% are actively supporting the government. And then at the same time, we have the effect of the sanctions on the Iranian economy, which makes the IRGC a most corrupted system that exists that earn its money through money laundering, through drug trafficking, and all of these have been documented. So earning money is a really difficult process for the Iranian IRGC. You know, there are laws against it, there's like sanctions and other things. If that happens, I think the collapse is inevitable and happens really quickly after that, because their main source of keeping their supporters in line at the moment is bribing them with money and actually paying them. But from the leaked documents, we are hearing more and more that they don't have enough stamina to continue like this. Their own soldiers are tired and feeling like they cannot do it. The police in some cities is not getting involved and they have to bring besieges in because they've been like fighting on the streets for two months, more than two months now, and they're tired as well as, you know, emotionally drained by seeing what's actually happening. And we saw some footages of, you know, the police getting in fight within each other. Nagin and Ramita, thank you both for joining us. That was Nagin Sheragai and Ramita Navai. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Now, as Ramita mentioned in our earlier discussion, much of the tension between Iran's people and Iran's government has been caused by pushback from a new generation of young people trying to enjoy a life with smartphones and without mandatory hijabs. To discuss this generational aspect of the protests, I'm joined by Holly Dagres, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and curator of the Iranist newsletter. Holly has been researching and writing about the Iranian Gen Z, also known as the 1380s generation, for the last year. Well, uh, Holly, let's start by trying to define what we're thinking of as as Generation Z in Iran. Who are they actually and, and why would their experience of the Islamic Republic have been different from their parents? Well, Generation Z or Gen Z, it's funny because in Iran, they actually don't use such terminology. They refer it in decades. So this is called Dahe Hashtad or the 1380s generation of the Iranian calendar. And so what what really makes this generation stand out is that they're part of the 
globalized Generation Z. And it's because of being born with access to information and communications technology. So satellite dishes, the internet and social media, albeit with the caveat that these are actually used in different ways. Satellite dishes are actually banned in Iran, but everyone has one. Internet is heavily censored. 35% of the world's most popular websites and social media applications like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter are all blocked in Iran. So Iranians actually have to use circumvention tools like virtual private networks to actually get online. So despite these big hurdles, they have been privy to the way the rest of the world looks, the way um, the rest of the world lives. And as a result, they have a lot of the same interests and preferences. And their ability to see outside their country that has given them this push to naturally have the same needs and wants of youth everywhere. They want the ability to um, go on a date, to kiss their lover in the streets, to wear what they want, to express themselves. And I think that this was really captured well in the, I would say, the de facto anthem of these protests, which is Baraya, or For the Sake of, by Shervin Hajipur. And so it really is as simple as that, that these Iranian youth have these same needs and wants. Is this generation, as far as we can tell, notably less religious than previous generations? And I suspect the two are wrapped up. Is it, is it less keen to subscribe to the America-bashing, West-bashing rhetoric of the Islamic Republic than previous generations as well? We've definitely seen over not just with this generation, but the generation before it's known as the children of the revolution, those that were born during and after the 1979 revolution, that they've definitely become less religious. We don't have exact numbers, but I'm anecdotally speaking as someone that grew up in Tehran. I think in any, any circumstance, when you have something shoved down your throat for four decades, in this case, the Islamic Republic's version of Islam, you, of course, push back on it. And I know that Ramadan is not a very popular holiday unless you're very conservative or have to adhere to it because your office or your school forces you to. I know that Iranians have become atheists, Buddhists, Christians, and of course there is reprisal for converting. So it's a very quiet thing that happens in the country. It's not something that people publicly discuss. So there's definitely a shift in terms of religion. In terms of their views of the West, especially an adversarial country like the United States, at least for their government, for a very long time that they've actually been able to separate the government and their people. And and if anything, I mean, just in the past few years alone, we've seen incredible footage come out of Iran where places like University of Tehran, where they actually have Israel and U.S. flags painted on the ground so that you walk over it as an insult, that college students will actually avoid walking on these flags. And of course, even when I was growing up there, they were very pro-America. I used to say that Iran was the most pro-American country in the Middle East, even after the global war and terror during the Bush years. And so we see that as well. And more recently, when you actually listen to the chants that are coming out of these protests in the past few years, and I should note that protests have arguably been normalized since December 2017 and January 2018. Um, you've heard these chants where they're actually saying America is not our enemy. Our enemy is here with us, referring to the clerical establishment. 
So there's very much been a, a shift from what the Islamic Republic puts out in their government propaganda and what their actual people are saying and feeling about the United States and the West in general. I mean, again, we are inevitably generalizing, and I'm sure this generation is not a leviathan that thinks with one mind, as no generation in no place is. But do you get a sense that they, the Generation Z we're talking about, the kids who have been protesting these last few months, do they regard America and the West as an aspiration? Is that what they would like Iran to be more like? I think you raise a valid point. There are over 86 million people in Iran and nobody thinks it's the same way. I know that when I'm talking about Gen Z, I'm talking about, I would say, urban middle class to an extent and also arguably the kids on the streets right now. And it's those ones that are actually, they know full well that they'll be beaten to death with batons or shot with bullets and they're still willing to go out out of desperation for change in their country. And just talking about wanting what's in the West, I think that 16-year-old Serena Ismailzadeh, who was beaten to death by batons by security forces, she actually vlogged her life and what it was like to be a young teenager living under the Islamic Republic and how how tough it was to be a woman that you couldn't even go to a football stadium or wear what you want. And so she really covered or encompassed really well her sentiments about what she wanted. She said, we could look to countries in the world that are doing worse than ours, but it's only natural for us to want better, to want more. And so we look to people in the West because they have a higher and better standard of living. They have democracy, they have freedom of expression and thought. And so for them, it's those basic freedoms that really matter. And that's why they look to the West for this aspiration. And it, because they see in a country like the United States that we're able to do it freely express ourselves. And yes, we can talk about American politics on a separate podcast, but it makes sense that a teenager who has access to the internet and has the same music and television movie preferences through the internet would want that as well. Because that to them is an an aspiration because it's so much of a better experience than what these youth are living under this authoritarian government. Well, just finally then, we don't know yet, obviously, how the current protests are going to end up panning out, whether this will change things massively for the Islamic Republic or not, because obviously people who can recall 2009 thought that might have been the end of the Ayatollahs, and it proved not to be. What we can say for sure, though, is that at some point, it may not be soon, but at some point, this generation we're talking about, the Iranian Gen Z, will get to run Iran. Iran. It will be their country. And I want to finish by putting to you a question I put to our other two panellists on the show today, which is, are you basically optimistic as you watch what is happening in Iran right now? <sighs> That's a loaded question. Well, you know, the, the one thing that really separates the Green Movement and any protest movement in Iran in the past few decades from the ongoing ones since September 16, in the wake of Masajina Amini's murder, is that there's continuity and that's unprecedented. We've had protests day in and day out, even during the green movement, they would ebb and flow. They just disappear for days and come right back. And it's that continuity that tells Iranians, whether they're in the diaspora or living in Iran and on the streets that tells people that this time it's different. And instead of scaring people when protesters are getting killed, 
it's pushing more and more people in the streets. It's making people more angry. And as someone that's lived through the Arab Spring, I know how things play out and it's things do look grim. But at the same time, I really think that this generation is a force to be reckoned with. And when you talk to them and the things they say, they tell me that they're willing to sacrifice. And they say these in their social media posts, some of these Gen Z protesters that have been killed, they actually will say, this might be my last time going out. And they know this full well. And then their posts, post-mortem go viral of them actually saying this. And that should tell you about the side, how much desperation, that they literally have two choices that they either rise up or they have to leave the country in a country where brain drain is historic numbers for the past four decades. And right now, these kids for now are saying that they've got to rise up and do something because it's their future that they have to worry about. That was Holly Dagres, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and curator of the Iranist newsletter. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.